Welcome to the next episode of the Rails Refactoring Podcast. My name is Andrzej Krzywda, and today I noticed a very popular uh, movement in the community. Well, I noticed it before, but Adam Hawkins wrote a really good blog post where he is touching really important points, and we decided that it would be a great idea to, to sit with Adam and to to cover those points, to speak about the Ruby community where we are right now, er, where we might be heading. So, Adam, hello, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, for those of you who don't uh, know me, my name is uh, Adam Hawkins, and I've been writing about Ruby and working with Ruby for some time. Uh, you may have seen me at some conferences, uh, most recently it was at uh, Roslov, also with our host, and uh, talking about uh, Ruby and a bunch of just Ruby things. And um, now my focus is primarily on uh, improving the technical foundations of the Ruby community and the values that we have uh, in order to yeah, make our community uh, a better place. Great, great to have you here. Uh... So yeah, I think it was last year when we were speaking together at the same conference, Wroclaw RP, and we we did this uh, discussion panel. We called it, I think it was called Legacy Rails Applications, Applications or something like that. And I think it was the first time we talked to each other and we we found that we have similar points of views on certain um, topics in the, in the Ruby community, in the Rails community. So I will put the link to the to the discussion panel in the show notes. So for the listeners, I think it's worth to, to, to watch it. Uh, and now you, you wrote this blog post and it was very popular. I've seen really good feedback on Twitter, on uh, Ruby Weekly, on Reddit. So could you maybe cover your most important message from, from this blog post? Yeah, sure. I think uh, the most important thing to take away from the post is that uh, I think that the Ruby, the Ruby community in general is suffering from a lack of technical quality and correctness in the software that we create. Uh, and that is the result of longstanding uh, cultural issues and not necessarily issues, but um, kind of optimizations and thinking of how software should be created and run and maintained. And uh, I think that we really must act to do something uh, about it if we want to survive long term. I think also in some way that the community has to pivot in a different uh, technical technical direction. Uh, and uh, the blog post is kind of my reasoning uh, about that and the kind of my take on the things that we should focus on and uh, hopefully encouraging people to get out there and experiment with different stuff, but also uh, focus on teaching others uh, more effective ways to construct software. Yeah, I, I remember the gem install business logic mentioned from your blog post. That was great. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with, with many of your points here, and I think it's... Uh, it's a topic which is very hard to discuss because there are so many different aspects of the conversation here that we will need to cover, like the history of our community, how we started. Yeah, definitely. And then we have uh, several, we are now probably more mature, a more mature community that we, than we were used to be. And now we have also legacy applications. So that wasn't a thing, I don't know, five years ago. Uh, and we have, I think we are still growing in the, like, in the terms of the number of developers coming to the community. So there's obviously some new technologies that are more cool than Rails or Ruby. Uh, but we are still growing, right? So like, who, what's our responsibility here? How we can, how can we drive this community or do we want to drive the community in any way? I mean, I think that we have to drive the community certainly in a different direction. And I, I agree with you that uh, the community in general has certainly aged. I mean, I started doing like Ruby through Rails, like most people coming from PHP in 2006, 2007. And a lot of things have changed since then, uh, especially people have created many more code bases and have gone through different like development cycles and learning all of these uh, different things. And I think a lot of us have also just matured as programmers, also as business owners and consultancy runners and all of these different things. And 
the kind of concerns that we had in the beginning are not the concerns that we have now. And we have to focus our energy into a more maintainable, like long-term uh, approach. And I think that's just natural evolution of the situation. And uh, also, like one thing I've noticed as well is there's certainly been a drop-off in the number of Ruby things being created because we've kind of reached a point where in general, there is a nice stability in the ecosystem that we have the tools that we need. I mean, the Ruby ecosystem is totally spoiled because there was seriously like a library to do anything that you can think of. But I think now we're at a point where we have to repurpose smaller bits to create alternate structures. And that's just a, I don't know, just an effect of all of the work that has happened up until this point. Yeah, so one of your messages is uh, to prefer small libraries over large ones and small APIs which is uh, it's difficult to disagree but if we look at the i need to mention rails here uh, when you when we look at it it has a huge api but it's also very very useful to many people so how can we agree how can we agree your suggestion with the thing that rails is uh, representing here or it's not only about rails sinatra is also some kind of a not so tiny library anymore well i mean i think when it comes to kind of answering those questions, it's about what kind of technical concerns are you optimizing for? Uh, like the reason why Rails was so impressive in the beginning was because it allowed you to do so many things very quickly. And the optimization curve is totally biased to the beginning and not at all towards the mid end or even the long tail of these projects. And uh, when you choose, say, smaller libraries or these different things that you may have to put more effort into, the initial benefit is not there, but it's distributed over a longer period of time. And there's certainly a space for both of those kind of technical concerns to exist. But I think that the problem, at least in my experience, is that there's been too much focus on that immediate short term and not on, say, the mid to long term or even putting an investment into understanding the tools that you use and tools that you use to create uh, your larger uh, your larger project. I mean, how many people just blindly uh, use a library without actually looking at it, how it's constructed or how it's working? And these are the things that we rely on to build businesses and do all of the stuff that we need to do. Uh, but I mean, there's certainly a space for the two, and you have to decide like what trade-offs you want and kind of what thing you know what are you targeting. Yeah, and there are so many examples of those uh, libraries that at some point they sound like the perfect fit for your applications, uh, for your race app or any web app. But uh, after using it for some time, you, you realize that it's actually globally monkey patching certain stuff in your, in your namespace or you need to use it in a global way or it's full of, I don't know, singletons. And like today we've had a, a company meeting and we were discussing problems that are caused by a fr the friendly ID gem, which is overall a gem that is okay, right? It, it helps you with generating the slacks for your URLs. But if you look under the hood how it works, it's, it's like global on global and it's very mm, coupling certain things to each other. So is it a problem of the library or is it a problem of the way we are using it? Or wh where exactly would you say the problem is with such libraries? That's a very difficult question because the uh, I think the problem is at the root of, for whatever reason, why it was decided to be constructed like that. And that's a very difficult thing to put your finger on. But uh, I mean, these kind of problems are endemic of so many different libraries that we deal with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's one of the things that I try to get out in the post is we have to kind of really start over from the beginning and change the values that we use uh, to create the software that we work with every day. And uh, certainly one of the things that's, I think, endemic of a lot of Ruby libraries and uh, just across the whole ecosystem is kind of instantiation fear. Uh, and by instantiation fear, it's, uh, I mean, people being scared enough or maybe <laughs> feel like they shouldn't do it just to point out, okay, this is how you instantiate these objects. These are the things that you have to pass at instantiation time. This is how you use them. Instead of using some sort of global configuration to just assume that the environment is constructed in such a way. 
And in order to like fight against that, you have to have people who've been burned enough by it to understand that the thing should not be created like that and to, you know, create some feedback for all the people who are creating things like this or do something to kind of step away from using these things entirely. Yeah, that's a good point with the the fear of initialization. Uh, so I think that's what most of the frameworks force us to do, that they try to, they, they, they kind of, they, they come with this message that we will handle the instantiation for you and all the gems that will be used later in the in the project will we'll also handle the initialization. And all you do is just tell us where to plug it to. So we are just responding to the framework in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's why one of the first points I've, I, at least I was pretty sure I wrote it in the post, is uh, that people need to, I mean, in general, we have to audit all of the dependencies that are in use and minimize them and make sure that we understand them uh, and that they can be integrated in such a way where it's obvious and understandable for the developers who use them and not just the authors of the libraries or people who have some different uh, assumptions. And uh, like one thing I've also noticed when it comes to using these kind of things is that there is really a lack of comments or documentation on how the thing should be working. Like when it comes to reading a lot of Ruby code, there is really not so many comments or documentation because there's this kind of <laughs> soft level understanding that all of Ruby code should be generally written, written real enough so it should be obviously understandable how it's functioning. But in general, that is not the case. And um, that only makes things even more confusing. Yeah, to be honest, uh, I need to admit that I I was, and I think I still am one of those people who who claim code comments are not required. But uh, when I when I joined the Ruby community, it was very early. Well, early for me, that was two thousand four when when Ruby started, and I was happy to see this uh, this habit of not not writing comments, and uh, that was great. But then when the when the coding standards, when the conventions, when they went into the magic route somehow, the magic way, uh, but but still keeping the rule of without code commenting, then I, I realized that that was a mistake in a way, because then you have all those magic jumps between different parts of code, and med there, there are some uh, connections that you don't see because they are explicit, not implicit. Uh, so this is a thing that I would actually like to know, and I want to be told it by, by a code comment because it's not it's not clear enough. So, but the problem, the root problem, I don't think is in the code comments. It's in the it's in the it's in the design. It's in the architecture. Why why are things connected so unusually? Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. And the 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 lack of comments is really just kind of a symptom you know, a symptom rather than the root cause. And that's why one of the things I also wrote that we need to value more technically is prefer things that are explicit and obvious over implicit. I mean, one of the things that is very endemic of a lot of Ruby libraries is to use metaprogramming to identify related components simply by class naming. And that is a gigantic implicit binding across very large parts of your code bases if, you know, if you use that. And that's one of the things that I have uh, stopped doing uh, completely. Also, because even if you want to use that kind of thing, the implementation of the metaprogramming to actually constantize something is not part of the standard library. And if you want to do it like in a correct way, I mean, actually the active uh, support constantize method does it very well because it has to, and it's the underpinning of pretty much the whole, the whole thing. But if, like the kind of rule of thumb that I've started to develop for myself if this is not available through the standard library or with very little extra work, I avoid those things uh, uh, completely. I remember, uh, I think it was one year ago, uh, when I was working on my book, on the race refactoring book, I wanted to present, to explain to the readers how, um, how the basic thing works in Rails, which means how the data is passed from the controller to the view. And I think this is the a uh, classic example of the of the magic here. So you need to go through, I don't know, it was like eight or ten places in the code you had to jump. And there were at least three magic jumps, uh, how the data actually goes from one place to another. 
And, and that was, this is like the, the most crucial part of the web framework, how to pass the data to the rendering yeah. the framework for the re rendering engine. And it was so complicated. So people use it. And I don't think many people will realize what's happening under the hood. I'm not sure they need to, but at some point, if you want to refactor your Rails controller, it's, it's, it's important to understand what's going on. Yeah, well, that's also where it comes to kind of the point that uh, I wrote actually in the post, and this is where I've been getting uh, the most questions. So it's probably an interesting discussion to have. Is uh, what did I what did I say exactly? Something like uh, prefer self-composed stacks or self-composed stacks over turnkey solutions. And uh, the reason why I wrote that is because if you are the one who constructs it and creates the relations of how these different layers work and how the data was passed together, it's easier for uh, you. It's easier for you to have understanding. And that's one thing that's critically lacking across a lot of different things is because some of these things have so many layers of let's say indirection or even layers inside layers that you have to put significant effort into really understanding so much of it to take it uh, like if you really if you really want to work with it you have to put in so much extra effort to understand these things and uh, in general from my experience it's been more effective for me to write something small that i could understand that was more explicit and obvious than using something that somebody else had constructed which has its own sort of implicit biases of how things should be constructed or how data should be passed around I mean, one thing now is extremely frustrating to me, and if I come across this, I'll just abandon this, abandon it completely, is if I can't figure out how to, if I don't have control of instantiation or how the things are passed along to different objects, I just abort using that code completely. Yeah, so this this is one of your message, one of the most important messages here is that you suggest preferring self-composed stacks over turnkey solutions. And I think many people are very positive about it, but also many people are a bit confused. So can we maybe jump with the discussions in this direction? What exactly do we mean? Like if today you were going to start a new um, web-based application, you knew that it needs to be web-based. Let's say there is also a mobile part involved, so you need to expose some API. Uh, whatever, let it be a social network for what, for whatever. And how would you suggest starting? If not with Rails, because I, that's what I understand from your message, then what? What, what would be your, your first steps here? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to do, I mean, I have created my own kind of little version of things that I use, but I can kind of work through my decision process, like my thinking process and, uh, I mean, one thing that immediately scares people away or is a big concern is, okay, how will I handle persistence? Because at the heart of most things, that's, it's really about data and how that, uh, how that whole layer works. So the first thing is that it's not very hard to write an application specific persistence layer. I mean, it's really, really not in, scary or difficult at all, especially if you use NoSQL or or these more simplified data stores is a little more complicated with relational databases because of how mapping has to work and more strict. But if you're using just something like Mongo, it's really trivial to just write your own persistence layer. And that is quite nice because you're totally free from a lot of different concerns and you're able to create, you know, exactly the object uh, or that you want to represent that particular layer. And then it's just kind of, fanning out to the different uh, boundaries you want to create in your application and figuring out how you want to re represent those particular boundaries. Like how do you want to pass data across them? Do you want to create something to represent data coming, say, from the web or from from the persistence layer or whatever, and just kind of go out from there? And uh, there's certainly different um, kind of things to prefer in each layer. But the important thing uh, for me is to pick different things that I can integrate to quite obviously instead of having to rely on something else. So I can kind of put this into a technical example uh, from my recent work on some like, experimental code bases and that uh, previously I've been using Sinatra for, yeah, oh God, like years since years basically. And uh, I had been using Mustache for a very long time. And one of the things that 
really kind of threw me for a loop with mustaches. It also does the constant lookup and like require loading and a bunch of kind of meta meta e things. And uh, instead, it was when I took an alternate approach, it was much easier to just define the mustache view classes, instantiate them with the data, and then call render. It was so much easier to figure out how all that was working and how I customize it. Like to put that, uh, to give another kind of spin on that example, I had been trying to create uh, like nested layouts in Sinatra with mustache using the official mustache integration. And I really couldn't figure it out because of the, how the way the templates were called. But in my uh, implementation where I had control of the instantiation of these objects, it was really quite trivial to create a nested layout structure simply by using object delegation. That's just basic, you know, OOP, but some of that stuff is is hidden from you implicitly. And if you have that uh, control, you can create the structure that you want. And that's kind of what the point of that particular point, uh, the, yeah, the essence behind that point. Yeah, I, I love the answer. And uh, I also agree with every step you, you took here. Um, but I wonder, is it what people want? Is it what people maybe they're afraid of? Are they confident enough that they will build a composed solution that has no holes, security holes or whatever, bugs? Because then you, you are responsible for that, right? Yeah, but I mean, if you're building a web application, you can use rack protection. I mean, there are these different middlewares to handle those kind of things. And I mean, it's not, it's, I don't know, it's, it's not necessarily scary because there are different layers of, say, handling everything yourself, right? Like, sure, you could you could write your completely own HTTP parser, which is not worth doing. It's totally a waste of time, right? You could also write your com completely own uh, database driver, all these different things, but that's not worth doing. I mean, in my experience, it's uh, more useful to pick the low-level tools to build your own higher-level abstractions on instead of choosing somebody else's own higher-level abstractions. Like, for example, it's very easy to implement your own repository object if you use the basic Mongo Ruby driver, and you can just execute your queries and do all of your particular things instead of relying on some sort of ORM like Mongo Mapper or Mongoid or any of these other things. You know, even using SQL, it's quite easy to just use its database driver to load data in the context of your own application. You don't even have to opt into the ORM. And uh, like, at least with SQL, SQL itself, the ORM is a very thin layer around its own uh, data set class. So there are different uh, kind of layers of, of handling all of that things yourself. And if you stick with the proven like, tools inside the ecosystem at those low layers, it doesn't really bother me at all, or it's not even a concern that I have. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned the repository pattern. We just, in the previous episode of this podcast, I was talking to Marcus Schrip and, and we were, we were also talking about the repository as a way of, you know, isolating yourself from the, from the persistence part and create this boundary here. So I think it's, it's good. It's good to repeat this message. And I think what your blog post on repositories from, I don't know, one year ago is one of the best examples on how to do it right. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, thanks for that. Um, but I, I also wrote a post, I think, maybe like a month ago about uh, my reflections on using repositories for uh, quite some time. And I had been working on a kind of a new implementation in Chassis uh, based on feedback from a lot of different uh, sources and ended up deciding that, uh, in general, that the repository pattern is great, but kind of implementing it is more difficult. Uh, and in general, what will work for most people that's easy enough to have is a mapper with a repository abstraction on top of that. Uh, so now I use, or I recommend that people look into ROM now that it's sort of getting some steam and with the mapper and then a class to actually wrap all of the ROM operations as the repository seems to be the best thing because you don't have to write any of the actual persistence code yourself and you are already separated at the, the boundary layer because the persistence handling itself is different per adapter. And when you wrap it in a class itself, you have a clearly defined interface and don't want the semantics of the particular, uh, like ROM in this case, leak out. So you completely encapsulate that entire abstraction through one single object. And it's turned out to be 
quite a nice way to implement uh, repositories. Uh, so you should check it out if you haven't. Yeah, I'm trying to follow what Piotr Solnica does, and he really does really interesting things uh, in this area. It was also interesting to see his transition from building a proper ORM to suddenly to switch to a different point of view. Well, not suddenly, but it was a nice transition, I think, to see him uh, not promoting ORM as everyone understands ORM, but I think ROM is not a classical ORM right now, right? No, not at all. I mean, it's a mapper. It's a command query, command query readers, or I can never get that acronym right, but it's a CQRS thing, and you have mappers, and you have commands. So you can read and write, and that's separated. And I mean, I particularly like it because it has what I had with my repository implementation was a separate read and write interface, but you don't necessarily have to write any of the kind of how to map an object to persistence. Uh, I think I've also been following his um, his transformation as well. And it's for me, that's also one of the examples I talk about uh, in the post is like watching independent transformations and other members of the community as well as time goes forward. So. Uh, I think he's certainly one person to pay attention to. Yeah, definitely. So it's also an interesting topic to cover in our conversation. Like we have this different, I don't know how to call it, centers of conversation. Piotr Solnica is definitely someone important in the community, showing by example what we mean by by small libraries, but what he means by small libraries. And it's it's always a really good thing to to watch his code and his, uh, his blog posts and so on. So do you see any other places in the community like Piotr that it's worth following, that they send a similar message to the community? Uh, that's difficult. I mean, I mean, I follow Piotr a lot and uh, use a lot of his work. And also Marcus Sherp, haven't actually been able to use Mutant so much, but when you use small tools like Concord and Anima, but other than that, I don't know. I mean, it's very difficult uh, to find uh, this kind of stuff. But there's actually a lot. I don't even. I don't know if it's still active. But there's like microrb.com, I believe, which has a lot of these. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, you can probably have your own uh, connotations the second you hear the word micro. But it's uh, small. A lot of small libraries focus on small problems, and uh, I don't know. As for like individual people, it's uh, kind of hard because, to be honest with you, I haven't <laughs> haven't met so many people or talked to, uh, talked to so many people, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with the post is bring this discussion more into the pub more into the public with people who are focused on these things and uh, working uh, in this way. So hopefully, we can you know <laughs> we can meet and do more good things together. Yeah, and one name I would like to add here is, is Sandy Matz and her last talk from the RailsConf. I think it was called Nothing is Something. And the way she presented uh, how you can pre make your design better by getting rid of ifs statements. I don't want to spoil this talk. It's really worth watching. But I think Sandy, uh, Sandy did many great things to the community. And... When I was wondering why uh, I'm so in agreement with her message so much, I found that uh, I I was a small talker at some point. It was a long time ago. It was a short period of time, but I got influenced by this way of thinking. And Sandy Metz, she's a small talker, uh, uh, and she was a small talker in the past. So I wonder if 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 maybe we are looking at people who share the same roots, who are from the same I don't know previous communities. Ah, maybe. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't, uh, yeah, I don't, actually, I don't even know how to react to that. So I haven't, uh, been, I haven't been programming uh, that long. I, mean, I had started with PHP and then moved over to Ruby and, and different things. I don't have that, like, long-term uh, experience that some people do. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm the old one here. <laughs> Only... Oh, no, only old in in age, but not at heart, right? <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, one of the, I think it's good that you mentioned other languages and other backgrounds because one thing that I think is that we need to start doing as a community is taking different things more from other languages and other communities. Like, 
there's just so many different uh, things out there and different ideas on how certain uh, application structures should look like that is beneficial. Uh, and I got that uh, from working with D a little bit. And that was like, okay, well, this is a great idea how to structure this. I want this, I want to do this in Ruby because it is much easier to understand and it makes more sense. And I like doing that. And there's a lot to learn from from the outside world. Yeah, uh, in the last two years, or maybe even three years, I noticed that I uh, I attend more Java and .NET conferences than I do the Ruby ones. It's actually I, I only attend the Roslav RB conference because I'm one of the organizers. But apart from that, I'm, I'm actually very conscious in my uh, decisions to to go to some other places and. I'm not saying that the Java or .NET are so better or they're different a bit and they can inspire and I think they deal with, um, they often deal with bigger applications than we do. So they they are experienced in solving the problems that we are trying to solve right now in our community. So how to deal with, you know, those big monolithic applications or how to, how to avoid those kind of problems. Yeah, I think that's uh, interesting as well. I, I actually haven't really. I have actually the last conference I attended was no, it was actually unfortunately it was RailsConf, but then Roslaw before that. But uh, actually, I'm looking forward to going to some more conferences on kind of just wider software engineering. I think it was CraftConf or something like that, and there was a talk on simulation testing that seemed interesting. And I have actually kind of gone through a testing, <laughs> a testing transformation in the past year. And uh, definitely like to see the Ruby community focus on different areas and different kinds of testing. I mean, that is one thing that has dramatically improved my, the quality of the software that I create and also my team creates. And, I wouldn't do, I, uh, it's hard to say, but uh, would, I, think, I don't know. There's just a lot we can be doing in that area, and it's hard for me to put my finger on it, but uh, simply just doing white box testing like inside the, the process itself is really not going to get you so far. And these are the kind of the ideas that come from outside that, uh, we have to, that we have to take in. And they come from different uh, areas, like you said, because people simply have different kinds of systems, different kind of problems, different things uh, to work on. And, and that's the only way that we're going to kind of grow uh, and evolve. I mean, that's one of the other points that I met kind of maybe it wasn't clear in the post, but I wanted to make is that we have to really change the way that we think and take in different stuff that maybe is strange or foreign, but we have to be more experimental about the, the things that we use and hope that maybe some of them stick, maybe some of them don't. But at the end of the day, hopefully the net effect is positive. Yeah, I noticed that among my programming friends, uh, many of them, especially the more experienced ones, uh, they do they still do Ruby, but they're influenced by their new programming languages. Like some people switch to Elixir, maybe not switch, but they're playing on, on the side or with Clojure or Haskell. You mentioned D. Uh, so there's a list of languages which are probably are going to inspire our community. So if you are using D on the side and I'm using Clojure and Husk on the side, I will probably bring back some of the ideas. So they can, I will try to promote it in the community. So in the long run, probably that will make it make the community richer with ideas, hopefully. So is that the way of, I don't know, uh, trying to make the, our community better? I think it's certainly one of the ways, uh, but maybe not, it's not going to be the be all and end all, but I think that just from observing my own personal transformation and the, like the experience that you mentioned and the experience that we see from other people, it has a, certainly a very, a positive impact like nothing else. And that's something that we should definitely have more of. Uh, but other, I don't know. It's 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 difficult. Uh, it's difficult to say because it's also a very long process. Because in order to kind of bring some of those ideas in, you have to have 
enough energy and experience to really kind of assess them and what they look like and kind of to tinker with them and experience them before you can say, okay, this is what was good, this is what wasn't good, and now I want to take this part or drop this part and bring it over here uh, or put a different twist on it, you know. So, but the uh, the impact is great. I mean, if you uh, actually one, I've been listening to my new my new favorite podcast is actually uh, no offense, but <laughs> my new my new favorite uh, podcast is uh, the mostly Erlang podcast because they have a pretty uh, wide range of topics on there and had the author of like, the Seven Languages and Seven Links books and was talking about the introduction of Elixir and how Jose, Jose Valdin got the ideas for that. And he said it was simply by looking at all of the different languages. And a lot of people have spoke very highly of Elixir. I haven't really used it yet. But, I mean, this is the kind of capacity that those experiences have to create. And it's definitely worth investigating. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, that, that you went through a transformation. And I think that would I would call my process of changing as a similarly. So that was a way of transformation. And, and I think I've seen it in, in several people's um, lives or careers. So there's something going on that people start with, uh, I will call it the, the rails way. That's what I call the, this way of thinking. But then at some point, some of them, uh, they transform and then they're doing this transformation period for a long, for a long time because you actually never, I don't think I'm, I, I'm no, I know where I'm, where I'm heading with this process. So I'm not sure if I'm, I reached the point where I can say I know everything. I'm, it's just, it's even worse. I, I think I, the list of things that I need to learn now is much bigger than it was five years ago. And that's a bit scary. And maybe, maybe that's one part of, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons that people, don't really want to go this way because when you are staying with this rails way it feels secure it feels like you can do basically everything with which is web related and then when you are asked to leave your comfort zone it's difficult you know that you will need to learn so many things and there right right now there are probably a huge part of our ruby community are people for for whom uh, the ruby language is the first language so it's not like, it's not like you you said you started with php i came from small talk in java uh, so it's it's a different point of view totally different yeah totally i mean it also the, i think it's it's very interesting to see how people's uh, like each person's personal programming history and career experience impacts how they think about software, uh, especially in, in constructing certain types of software. I mean, if you've only known building web applications and web services, there's a certain kind of mindset that you get in versus if you were, say, building kernels or building uh, desktop software or these things and all, all those uh, different uh, ideas kind of come together and bias you in certain ways. And uh, I think that's at least the most interesting thing for me as part of this whole yeah, like transformation you mentioned is taking in other communities and seeing their experience and their focuses and kind of the things that they optimize for and how in turn that affects the software uh, that they create. And that actually has been one of the most effective things for me is to stop doing uh, HTTP and stop doing HTML. And focus on things that don't involve the in, like just don't involve the internet, don't involve web programming because there is a lot of difficulty around web programming uh, itself that just creates a certain whole layer of complexity. And if you can get to something that doesn't have that, and you can focus on say the core of a problem, the core of a problem domain where you can just implement it or work on something in a completely isolated way, you have such a high capacity. Uh, to learn uh, without that, uh, just without those other concerns, and that in turn will impact the way that you construct web applications or any other software uh, in the future. So that has been, at least for me, one of the most impactful uh, experiences. Yeah, I also like to think with every feature or with every project I'm involved in. Uh, whether my design is influenced by the fact that it's a it's a application that communicates via HTTP at some layer, or that it persists the data to our relational data database, 
how would I design this application if it was like a console application or uh, I don't know if it if it was Ruby but on mobile uh, with probably Remotion or if it was uh, I don't know a desktop um, application so with a different UI and the persistence would be much different as well and if I see a difference in the design that I think I did something wrong that I was too influenced by the boundaries, actually, this the HTTP, the persistence, those are boundaries. They, they shouldn't influence the core of my application. But most of my of our projects where I see, we usually inherit projects from other people. So we have this excuse that we can say, no, this is not, it wasn't our design. But even if I look at some of my older applications, I, I see this, I see this, you know, influence. This is web stuff. I can see it immediately. Yeah, I I completely I completely agree. I mean, one of the things just to speak on like one of the things that bothered me for some time, and I've been able to put my finger on it specifically recently, was that URL form encoded causes so much pain and suffering in web development that it just infects so many different things. Like specifically, I will just mention this one other bit about access support that the monkey patched blank method is really there to handle crap coming from HTML forms. And that uh, has impacted so many different things beyond that one particular thing that it's just like, it's maybe it was, it just reused for so many different things and it just goes, uh, goes everywhere. So <laughs> you can, you can, you can definitely see that. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good point with the blank method. But like one other, when you to kind of come back to the design a little bit of how this alternate, like how say working in a different area can impact your how you would construct another. You mentioned like CLIs and these different things. So over the past year, I've been working almost exclusively with Thrift services, and that has been great for many reasons. But one of the reasons why. I like working with the thrift uh, services is that you define your protocol and you define the RPCs in the protocol and each RPC is a method. Now to implement that protocol, you create an object that responds to all of those methods and returns the appropriate things. Now this is quite nice because it's very obvious how the different things are implemented. You have a method, it's very easy to test it. If you want to say test implementation, you just instantiate your object, call the method with the appropriate arguments and insert on the response. Like in that way, it's also very functional, so it's much easier to test. And one of the things that has been greatly annoying me about most of the stuff in the Ruby web world is that it's not constructed in this way. Because if we take Sinatra, for example, it uses a class level DSL to create mappings between uh, you know, HTTP paths and a code block, which you, which you can use to say invoke a method, but that block is inherently peppered with a bunch of state and actually in, executed in the context of the instance of this class and all those different things. And when I started to see this kind of pattern and different things, it's also why I mentioned that D specifically is that's how uh, they implemented one of their HTTP servers. And it's the same thing in Go is that you bind a path to a particular function and you can do it with objects. And it's like, this is actually, this is how I want to construct web applications. It's very easy. I map a path to a method on an object. That, met that method accepts an HTTP request and returns an HTTP response. It's so, I mean, it's so obvious to me now and it's a very clear, it's a very clear boundary. And that just, that structure has been like so obvious to me and effective now that I wouldn't have really been able to think of it because I was also just uh, kind of boxed in by my previous experience that I had to kind of go outside of something else to see something that worked better to now construct this alternate software in a different way. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, but also, you mentioned the class level DSL, which I hate. Whenever I see anything class level, that's a sign of a bad design for me. Uh, but sometimes you just can't ex ex escape from it because you are enforced by the framework or whatever. So we, we mentioned already the repository pattern, how to isolate from the persistence. Uh, but if you want to isolate from the HTTP part, uh, we often use the service objects pattern, uh, which I think is becoming more and more popular in the Ruby community as well. So what's your take on that? Like, is it a good way of isolating yourself from the, um, from the framework? 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably the best you're going to get. I mean, I think the only really thing to the most the most important thing to enforce is that you need to have some object that completely encapsulates one particular HTTP request if that's what you're going to be dealing with. Then you have to have some object that can return a representation of an HTTP response. And then whatever happens inside of that particular interaction, maybe it's a service object, maybe it's simple enough that you don't need one. And it's, yeah, it's, I think in my opinion, it's totally, yeah, totally fine <laughs> uh, and effective. True. So yeah, in some places you actually want to just grab some data and expose them to HTTP. So the service office layer doesn't really feed very well. Mm. And this is what I noticed in the when I was attending the Java and .NET conferences. Uh, I was very quickly surprised how uh, how much do those people talk about CQRS and event sourcing and those those two things combined together. Like there's every Java conference, every .NET conference. There's like this is the topic number one for many of the talks, and the microservice is obviously not the topic number two, like everywhere. But CQRS and event sourcing is like a topic that is so visible in those communities, Java and .NET, while it's almost non-existent in the Ruby community, which was, uh, that was for me a huge, I don't know, difference. And uh, then I started learning CQRS. We we did even some projects with, with some of the patterns from those ways of architecturing your application. And it's, it sounds very interesting because then you have, you want, you can split your application into reads and writes, which is not very intuitive at the beginning. But once you start doing it, it actually, you, you can actually see that in, in some applications, you have exact, you have totally different way of, mm, your read model is different from your write model, which is very interesting and surprisingly good. Yeah, I agree. One other thing I've noticed from the particular use of that patterns, it's, uh, even if you don't have, say, separate um, separate models completely, but if you if you have all of your reads and all of your like a interface defined for all of your reads, and it's very obvious to see what things need data store level optimizations, be it indexes or different things like that. Like for example, you know if you have a repository and you have a method for all the different kind of reads you have to do, and those will execute some particular database query. It's pretty obvious to see. Okay, I need to index on this. I need to index on this. I need to index on that, uh, and that <laughs> that uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen by accident, right? Whereas if you have a completely infinite interface that can do everything, it's much more likely that you'll make one of those significant performance mistakes. So that's been a big benefit for me in that application. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me uh, switch to a different topic for a moment, and I would like to ask you if you have any suggestion how to how to induce the will of change in Rails developers and Ruby developers. Like, how can we? Is there actually in a way of convincing um, less experienced people that the OOP way is good for them? They often say things like, "This is more code. Uh, why should I use that when I have a jam which actually solves the same problem?" So. Is, is there any way we can convince them? Should we convince them? I think parents have been trying to do that with their kids for years, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it's very difficult. And uh, I think that's one of the points that I also try to make in the post is that we need to just demonstrate and show uh, value in a different, in a different way, you know? And I think the, yeah, I think that just the best way to do that is by example and by saying like, look, you can do this. It is understandable. It's actually accomplishable. It's not voodoo or magic. It's just programming. And we're all programmers. We're all developers. We all know how to do this stuff. So just, you know, just watch, like pair and show and lead by, uh, lead by example. And hopefully that can kind of spark some interest. I mean, I can see that kind of thing happening in my own team, not just by uh, like programming specifically, but uh, or like Ruby development, but just pairing, you know, like if you put two people together and one person is sitting there watching another person do something and they're kind of scratching their head in kind of awe and just kind of like, wow, how are you doing that? Or how does that work? You know, like just kind of piques their curiosity and maybe gets them interested to think, you know, like I could do that, right? And I, you can't force people to change. You can hopefully only make it attractive. 
Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Uh, so yeah, and pairing is does really help, and it makes the knowledge to to be transferred much much faster. Um, so at RKNC we sometimes, uh, not always, but sometimes we we join an existing team uh, of programmers for a while to help with the project to make it the project better or faster or whatever. And and usually usually we 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 know the Ruby parts, the web parts. This is you know our expertise. I'm I'm never worried about the possibility that something can go wrong on those parts. We know how to deal with performers, with security, with everything. But there's this part exactly that we just touched. The I would I'm calling it peopleware problem. So whether our values, our way of coding, can be compatible with the with the um, with the existing team, and you know how to make it compatible over time. So I know it, it can't be it can't happen over I don't know one month even. Sometimes it takes months. So it's a difficult topic because now we are talking about soft skills probably, but uh, and also it's very difficult to not to make it in a way that we are the better people and we know it, let us enlighten you, uh, because it also doesn't work. It's, it's, it shouldn't be this way, I think. So it's, it's a very difficult uh, uh, point for me, and that's usually the riskiest part of the, of the project, I think. Yeah, man, I can totally, totally relate to that. And I think you just have to take it one little small step at a time and introduce some different structures in a small way and let that grow. I mean, plant the seeds and let it and let it go. I mean, that, that's how I've seen it happen in other uh, in other people and other projects. And you know, I, I don't think it's it's going to be like a, yeah this immediate thing. It's just this. It's it's a slow erosion and uh, and steady process, especially when you come into a big. A big code base, you know, if the odds are, if in the example that you gave, if some company is hiring you to like for staff augmentation, that they have a big thing that needs to be worked on, and say turning the insides, uh, turning the inside out would be very difficult. But there's probably one little patch of the code that you can improve in a different way, right? And just uh, and just let that go. Just, I mean, that's the most effective thing that I've seen happen at the company that uh, that I work at. Mm -hmm. At some point, I was even so radical that I was saying things like, uh, maybe, I'm not sure I agree still with this message, but I was saying things like, maybe we should have different teams of people um, implementing the, a different team of people implementing the the prototype, the first version, if we work with a startup, then, for example, the first year or two of their code base, maybe this should be handled by a different team, but then... Maybe it should be switched to a different team. I don't want to say a better team, but maybe we can be experts in dealing with uh, uh, with larger projects, while some people are very, very good at making things very fast, very quickly at the beginning. So, for example, I know that I'm not so fast. I, if you, I don't know, ask me to develop the first release of one application, of some application, I know you can find faster people, cheaper, faster people. But... Uh, Maybe I'm okay with the the, the further uh, phases of the project, but I it sounds weird, uh, but sometimes I, I think like that. So it, great, this team was doing a great job. You they helped the company to develop to this level. Now they are a different stage. Now they need some more um, I don't know maybe patterns, maybe some more architecture, maybe something like that. I don't know. I, I actually I kind of agree with that idea that uh, I mean. There's certainly, I mean, what you're speaking about is different phases of software, different phases of business. And in the beginning, you say that you're in a business and the idea is unproven and time to market uh, is more important than long-term quality because you have to just say, put an MVP out there that proves that the business is viable, right? And let it go, let it grow and see what happens, right? And then maybe a year or two, you've got to a point where, okay, you know, like, this is pretty good. We know what we're doing. Like we've learned a lot, and now we can say either <laughs> I would advise against rewriting it completely, but you can certainly restructure it. And then there's this completely different set of technical trade-offs that have to be uh, have to be considered, and that totally changes the way that it's structured. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. I think it's just it's just natural. I mean, we just came out of something like this. The company where I work at. And in the beginning, it was 
uh, hire some consultancy to augment the few local developers just to create something to prove that this is functional and do it. And then it grew and grew and grew into something bigger and bigger because there was never a decision to say, okay, okay, this is working. We need to do something about this stuff to create it now more accurately to what the requirements are. Uh, because those over the course of that like prototype period, odds are the requirements also change as well, but the prototype has been updated completely to reflect the current requirements. So it's, uh, I mean, it's certainly difficult, but I don't think it's a radical idea in any way. I don't necessarily consider the, the like you said, I wouldn't say it's a better team. It's just a team with different technical concerns and that's uh, different concerns and different trade-offs and different, uh, uh, different uh, like, different lifetimes. I mean, and that's what it's, and that's, I mean, really all it's about. And that's funny because many, most of the projects I think we, we, we entered at some point, we, we actually removed more code that we have written, like in the large, in the longer period of time. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, and it, this is a very hard thing to just say, like, you should do it or you shouldn't do it. It's not just clear cut, but this is where the, like I touched on it a little bit in the post, is where you have to focus the long-term maintenance, like maintaining these sort of things and making sure that the code is updated also when requirements are removed as well. Like one thing that I've noticed to be very confusing is that you say you come into a code base and you see some code and it's like, okay, what is this doing? And then you have to find somebody a bit on the team for longer. And then you ask them to say, oh, well, that functionality has been removed for a year, but the code is still there. And all that does is just create more confusion. And you have to go in and then figure all that stuff out. So I mean, removing, removing the code is, is great. I think people are also afraid to kill their code because they put so much, they maybe put time or effort into it. But you know, you have to let it go sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I think it's time to wrap up. Uh, is there any, I don't know, maybe a more positive message we want to send from this conversation? Like how to encourage people to, to where to look at or how to improve or what would be your suggestion to, 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 to our listeners here and what, do, what can they do now after listening to this conversation? I think that... <laughs> I can give them. I can give the kind of the same recommendation that I, I gave uh, myself a while ago. Is that um, change your assumptions, experiment, and try different things. That you have to go outside of your comfort zone. There are people out there who are interested and can help you. But the only way to really improve and change the way you work and change your perspective is to go out of your comfort zone and try things that are new and uh, see what sticks and um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I mean, it's okay. Do some experiments on some small code bases, do some, you know, just try some different things out and look through other libraries. I mean, don't go to Ruby gems and sort by most downloads, look around, like audit code, see what's up, see what other people are using and uh, speak to speak to different people. Because, you know, one of the other things is that, not everybody thinks about problems in the same way. And maybe somebody has constructed some library that makes more sense the way that you think about problems and it's easier for you to work with. You know, don't just assume that the community is the person or like the group that can solve the problem in the best way. I think all people also need to have more, <laughs> uh, I mean, somewhat confidence in yourself to attack problems and feel that you can solve them uh, in a good way. But I think the most important thing to do is just to try and make an effort and uh, to ask people around you or like in your team or online or whoever it is to say like, hey, man, maybe you can help me with this or what do you think or, um, you know, inquire for things to read or, or anything, uh, anything like that. But uh, start by, yeah changing your assumptions, experimenting with things and try to create uh, and try to create good boundaries. I mean, good boundaries are, I think the most important thing because it will allow you to do so many more experiments and try out, uh, just try out different things and you just have to go. That was a great message. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. 
Um, <laughs> You're welcome. I don't know if it was too long on rambling, but I think it, it just covers a lot of stuff. Yeah, I agree with everything. And just maybe a message from me, maybe a, a bit a low level one. Uh, even if you're stuck to rails, it's okay. Rails is okay. And the rails way is okay for certain phases of your project, probably the earliest ones. And at some point, try to find the ways of isolating. Maybe not the whole application because it's difficult, but find one of those places where you can isolate from rails, from the database. And now you are in a totally free world where you can design without active record, where you can do things without active support and try to do that and experiment with what you come up with. So don't be influenced by the web stuff, don't be influenced by the database stuff and try to come up with something new for you, which is probably the same as Adam said. Yeah, man, I agree. And, and that's the whole point is experiment and try and find something that, uh, and that works for you and don't be afraid to admit that you're in a different phase of the project or just a, a different phase because the requirements of each phase are totally different. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just natural evolution. Okay, so that's a good point to end the conversation. Thank you very much, Adam. It was a great to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, man, me too. Always good. We have lots of good flowing conversations, which is great. Okay, and thank you to our listeners. And soon we will come up also with the next episode. So stay tuned and thank you.